time for Legally Speaking. Joined, as always, by Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Morning, Michael. How are we doing? I'm doing just great. Always good to be here. Absolutely. Joining us by a long distance today, so we're hoping that the signal holds, that the line holds, but in the event that it is disrupted, our, our audience uh, can have that foreknowledge so they're not overly surprised. But you're sounding pretty clear. Uh, yeah, it sounds good. And as I said, I'm always happy to be here, whether I'm physically in town or not. So, I know. Uh, and we do appreciate well, that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um, so uh, we have a, a car dealership liable for a catastrophically injured woman hit on Central Sandwich Road. Michael, help us understand how a car dealership might have any liability for a person who is hit by a vehicle. And this is a really interesting and I must say tragic case. Um, it's a case involved a woman who in 2018 was going for a walk on Central Saanich Road uh, with her sister, as it happens. Um, and uh, she, uh, they were walking their dogs, uh, and uh, she was hit uh, by a uh, vehicle, causing uh, to, which resulted in the death of her sister and her sister's dog, and just horrific injuries suffered by uh, a woman who at the time was a 48-year-old bookkeeper. Um, the injuries were, uh, physical injuries were terrible and broken ribs and issues with their vision. Uh, but the uh, most significant uh, injuries at the end of the day uh, resulted in uh, a, a terrible uh, brain injury uh, that uh, has resulted in her uh, having impacts described by the judge as things like um, impairment of self-awareness, short-term memory, unable to self-regulate. It doesn't have a sense of time, can't sell, just terrible circumstances. She requires now essentially 24-hour care. Uh, she was in intensive care for a long time, uh, Vic, uh, Vic General Hospital for about a year, uh, and now has to re uh, reside in a long-term care facility. So just a terrible accident. Yeah. And the, um, the case uh, um, had this interesting wrinkle uh, about uh, the ownership of the car. And the reason that was a, an issue um, is that the car uh, was in the process of being hopefully purchased from a local car dealership. Hmm. Uh, but that process of selling the car hadn't yet been completed. What happened is the woman who was interested in purchasing the car, a relative of the person who was driving it at the time uh, that the accident occurred, um, had gone into the dealership and was trying to purchase the car, uh, but couldn't uh, or, um, couldn't qualify for financing at the time, uh, despite being quoted what looks to me like extremely high uh, rates of interest and so on, uh, but wasn't able to uh, qualify that. The dealership, not wanting to lose the sale, drew up uh, a contract saying that she would purchase the vehicle for cash knowing full well she was completely incapable of doing that um, and always having the expectation that that would later be ripped up once they found some lender uh, prepared to uh, lend her money at uh, a very high rate of interest. And so they let her take the vehicle home on signing this contract that nobody thought she was able to fulfill. She lends the vehicle a few days later to her relative, who goes out and causes this terrible accident. Now, the reason a car dealership has uh, liability um, is that the Motor Vehicle Insurance Act provides that uh, if you lend your vehicle to somebody else uh, and they cause an accident, you're still responsible for it. 
right? You know, if you say to yeah. your yeah. Uh, brother or something, hey, you can take my car out now, and they run somebody over, uh, you can still be on the hook for it uh, because it's your car. Mm-hmm. That's the theory of it. Okay. The car dealership said, no, 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 this isn't our car anymore. We've sold it to this woman, <laughs> right? Yeah. She signed this agreement. The reason that didn't hold up um, is that the judge concluded there was no expectation that that contract would ever be fulfilled because everyone knew the woman could not afford the car. Uh, and the in British Columbia, we have some consumer protection legislation that provides that contracts can be deemed to be unconscionable in various circumstances. One of those is that when there's no reasonable probability uh, that the consumer could pay for the item. Uh, And indeed, that was the case here. And so the judge found that that contract was invalid. The one that they had done up intending to be sort of a temporary thing while they tried to get financing. And so as a result, the car dealership still owned the car. Um, And the judge found that it would be uh, a reasonable expectation that if you give somebody your car, they could take this home for a week while we try to get financing for you, that they might well lend it to the family member. And so the net result uh, is that uh, the car dealership was still the owner. And because of this provision that if you lend your car to somebody and they get into an accident with it, you're responsible for it. And so that's the basis upon which ultimately the judge found that the car dealership uh, is um, on the hook for what was at the end of the day, a five and a half million dollar judgment. Wow. Uh, because this woman will require care for the absolute rest of her life. Now, another interesting element here that I think frankly should make people perhaps a little angry and it'll tie in with the next story is how ICBC approached this. So I told you the background of the case and just how terribly injured this woman was. Yeah. Um, by the way, the person driving was convicted of impaired driving causing death <laughs> subsequently. But here's what ICBC did. According to the judge, ICBC filed a third-party notice, which they're allowed to do where there's a car accident and they might have some liability. They can participate in the case because they might get the bill at the end of the day. And said, ICBC pleads that the plaintiff herself was negligent and denies any injuries arising from the accident. It denies that um, the person driving was negligent, that's the person who was convicted criminally. Uh, It pleads that the plaintiff had not followed medical advice and failed to mitigate her damages. So basically, ICBC became involved in the case and denied everything, right? Denied that she was hurt. Blamed the woman who was hit while walking her car uh, and blamed her for not doing sufficient things to mitigate her uh, damages. And that, to my mind, is really concerning. Um, And in part because this case arose from 2018, which is how this matter wound up in court, right? In 2021, the government brought in no fault. If we were in 2021, if this accident occurred um, now, if you were a person like this woman who was struck down and life is completely uh, altered forever, you would be at the mercy of ICBC. Yeah, uh, a, a, you know, and when you look at how they approached this case, yep. which at least on the judge's description of it, could not be more clear in terms of the enormous life-changing tragic injuries. 
to uh, take that kind of a position causes you to shake your head and should cause listeners to be very worried about how they may be treated uh, by ICBC if you wind up in a circumstance like this woman within, when you have no remedy to go to court and you're left at the whim of what the insurance company wants to do to you. You can just imagine how that would play out. Yeah. And so that is really worrisome. Um, and uh, you should, people should remember that uh, when they're uh, thinking about uh, those changes to the insurance system. Um, you know, if you uh, don't have uh, complete faith uh, that uh, ICBC will just treat everyone fairly when they can't be effectively challenged on it, you should be really worried as you're walking down the road. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. you know, we're, uh, we're seeing other reports of that come out now with people who are just really seriously hurt uh, and aren't able to uh, get uh, potentially what they need to uh, pay for their injuries and care. Yeah. This woman was very fortunate in terms of both um, when this accident happened. Uh, she was also, uh, I think, very well served by uh, the legal arguments that were made here, which ultimately the judge accepted. Uh, but uh, if these things occurred later, and if you, the approach taken by ICDC in this case reflects how they are treating people now, that should be both worrisome uh, and, uh, in my view, should make people angry. Uh, because this isn't some insurance company that's a private entity that should be out there trying to maximize profits for shareholders. It's a public corporation, uh, and you would just hope uh, that uh, they would act in a fair uh, fashion and treat people that way. But it's really worrisome uh, that we now have a circumstance where uh, if they don't act in a fair fashion, people may be uh, completely out of luck, uh, and that's just uh, really not fair or appropriate. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. I think that's a opportune time to take our first break. You're listening to CFAX 1070. We will continue right after this. All right, we're back on the air here at CFAX 1070. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers as we continue our conversation. Michael, how are we doing? I'm doing great. Um, so the next case, the next case on the agenda is also on that theme of uh, changes made to ICBC coverage and litigation. Um, and uh, listeners will recall that, uh, you know, a few years ago, we had this language from the uh, provincial government, uh, David Eby, saying the ICBC was a financial dumpster fire, right? We had, uh, that was a justification, ostensibly, for uh, moving ultimately uh, to this no-fault um, scheme, which, by the way, uh, now it, we seem to have a completely different picture where they've got... Uh, ICBC sending out uh, checks to people uh, uh, for ostensibly political reasons. But leaving that political issue aside, uh, one of the other uh, changes that the uh, government made uh, prior to implementing the complete no-fault system uh, was an effort to uh, reduce the amount uh, that people were uh, awarded who were injured by capping what are referred to as disbursements uh, in uh, cases involving car accidents. And the way that works is that often in these particularly complicated um, 
personal injury car accident cases, reports can be required from doctors and specialists to indicate, you know, how badly was somebody injured or how long might their injuries last, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of the day, if somebody is uh, successful uh, in suing for damages on the basis that they were injured in a car accident, uh, a judge, in addition to compensating them for their injuries or lost income or whatever it might be, the, there could be a requirement that the losing party pay for some of those expenses, things like medical reports, right? Otherwise, the person's just out of pocket, which wouldn't be fair. Well, one of the things that uh, the government uh, did prior to bringing in no fault is that they implemented a uh, limit on how much those uh, disbursements could be, like the medical reports, that kind of thing. Um, And they limited it to uh, 6% of whatever a total damage award might be. And the effect of that was that in complicated cases where a person had, you know, many injuries or you needed more than one specialist to uh, provide information about them, the cost of the reports might be more than that. And so the idea was that it would save ICBC money if they didn't have to pay uh, for all of the reports, meaning that the person who's hurt would have to pay for it out of pocket, basically. Um, And so uh, another decision which just came out was a decision challenging, a case challenging that decision to limit the amount of disbursement so as to avoid ICBC having to pay for all of the medical experts, for example. Um, And in this case, the uh, judge found that that decision, and it came in the form of a regulation from the government, uh, was uh, unconstitutional. Uh, and of no force and effect. So the uh, judge has struck down uh, that uh, limit uh, on the uh, payment for medical and other reports on the basis that it uh, interferes with the core jurisdiction uh, of superior courts to properly try cases. And so it's not the first successful challenge to some of these Uh, changes that were made. It's sort of one more in the wall, but it it does seem to be uh, sort of a clear indication that courts are uh, agreeing with uh, arguments dealing with just the fairness of some of the uh, uh, legal changes that were made. Uh, And so you can well imagine how uh, this decision might, for example, have an impact on that case we just talked about Mm. uh, with the really badly injured woman. Mm. Um, but for this decision, um, because she had so many different kinds of injuries, right? Brain injuries and ribs and eyes, all kinds of things. You could easily imagine how you might need more, you know, than one or two doctors to give evidence about what those meant or, you know, how long they were going to affect her, that kind of thing. And so this decision, which just came out last week, uh, will mean that uh, the government's effort to limit those things is ineffective. Although, again, that's only going to assist people uh, who uh, might have been hurt prior to no fault coming in last year. Uh, Because once uh, people are under this no fault regime, uh, again, they're basically at the mercy of uh, ICBC. They have what amounts to like a a WCB claim. People might be familiar with that. 
um, where ICBC could just decide what somebody might get uh, each month and tell the person, you must go do this or you won't get your next monthly payment. And the person would be unable to go to court uh, to ask a judge to overrule them. Um, And so this isn't going to uh, fix the problem uh, that's been created, but it may be of some help uh, to people who are really were really badly hurt prior to um, no fault coming in, uh, because it would allow them to um, have whatever experts are required to uh, assist the court in determining, you know, how badly hurt they were or how long your injuries might uh, last for. Um, so again, it's uh, I must say disappointing uh, that uh, the this um, legal approach was taken, right? It it doesn't require too much thought to realize how this could, that kind of a change, saying we won't pay for all of these reports, could work a real unfairness uh, and a particular unfairness to people who are very badly hurt, right? It probably wouldn't matter much for somebody who has some minor problem, but somebody who has some very complicated, serious uh, problem with all kinds of injuries, that's the person uh, who's going to be asked to pay out of pocket uh, in order to save money for ICBC. Um, and so, uh, again, it just doesn't seem like a, a fair or a reasonable uh, approach uh, to take. Uh, again, you would just hope that the uh, you know core decision-making function when determining how things are going to work with a public insurance company would be fairness, right? Um, right? It shouldn't be there to generate profit or shortchange people who are legitimately hurt. Um, to my mind, any policy with respect to um, a public insurance company ought to pass the threshold test of basic fairness. Um, and this one not only did not do that, uh, it didn't meet constitutional muster either. And so on that legal uh, basis, uh, those changes are now uh, no longer effective. Uh, won't solve everything, but may be helpful for uh, people who were hurt uh, prior to last year. And our last story. Uh, our last uh, last case on the agenda deals with the issue of builders' liens, uh, which people may be generally familiar with. The basic principle there is that if a property owner hires a contractor, somebody to do work, Um, and then there's a dispute about whether the contractor's been paid, the contractor can file a lien on the property. And the lien would show up on title uh, and would ordinarily have the effect of preventing the person who owns the property who had work done on it and allegedly didn't pay for it from just going and, you know, selling it and moving on, right? Potentially leaving the contractor out of luck. Uh, And so that's why we have that uh, those builders' liens, lien provisions. This case had a fact pattern that ties in with, of course, what everyone's familiar with now, which are rising interest rates. And it's a case where there was a dispute about uh, whether the uh, builders, the claim that was supported by the builders' lien, should be removed so as to allow the property owner to refinance their property before interest rates went up even more, right? They were concerned, as I'm sure many homeowners are, about, oh, my goodness, rates are going up. And so the builder's lien uh, legislation in British Columbia 
um, has authority for somebody who's a property owner uh, to go to court uh, and ask that a judge remove the lien so as to allow things like the sale of the property, or in this case, refinancing of it. And when somebody does that, um, a judge needs to uh, assess things like the merits of the claim, right? Is this thing obviously uh, without merit, right? We wouldn't want to work uh, on fairness by having a builder's lien hold somebody up uh, if the claim obviously didn't have any merit. Mm-hmm. Uh, or in this case, there was an argument that, hey, the, uh, the contractor was kind of dragging its feet and should have moved faster along with its claim. Um, that, in this case, uh, didn't uh, carry the day. There was delay, but the delay was caused by things like uh, the power going out uh, during an examination for discovery. It could be a step before trial. Uh, or the and in this case, also the trial being adjourned due to COVID. And so, uh, well, a judge has power to uh, remove a lien. Um, in this case, the judge concluded that this wasn't a, a completely meritless claim. Uh, it wasn't a case of just the uh, contractor dragging their feet uh, to cause trouble for the property owner. Uh, and so uh, the legislation has a provision whereby a judge can agree to uh, order a lien to be removed, but only if the uh, property owner posts security for the amount of the judgment, right, if the party is successful. And so that was what was done here. And so people should be aware of that. If there is a lien posted by um, a contractor and there's a legal dispute about it, the property owner can go to court and a judge can order the lien removed uh, and then has discretion about whether to require the property owner to put into court or in trust the amount of money that's in dispute so that the contractor doesn't wind up uh, with nothing if the property wound up being sold. So that's how it plays out. People should know about both builders' liens and there's some remedy if there's a dispute uh, about whether they should stay in place uh, even before ultimately the uh, trial takes place. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Always a pleasure here on CFAX 1070. Thank you so much for your time, and we look forward to next week. I always uh, always enjoy it. Have a great week. Thank All you. right. All right. You too. Bye now.